Hey y'all, this podcast contains potentially disturbing content. That content might include graphic references to topics such as sexual abuse, self-harm, violence, eating disorders, sexuality, as well as explicit language. Parental discretion is advised. Starting now, bitch. Good morning and tax the churches, but also work it. Work it, girl, because you're listening to the Queer LBC Podcast, the only podcast recorded live here on this beautiful Tongva land, the international city, Long Beach, California. I'm Nino, local construction daddy and podcast fatty. My pronouns are he, him. Thank you for asking. I have with me here my fabulous cohorts. Hey, bitches, guy, your local street pharmacist. My pronouns are sis, mama, and motherfucking queen. Dr. David here, your professional chismoso. My pronouns are he, him. So what do you have for us today, Nino? Oh, you know, just some quirk tea and queer events, 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 queer, queer, queer. Take a sip. Take a sip, you big stupid bitch. All right, so this is the quick tea and the queer events. This is where we get into the L, G, B, and the T of it all. Sometimes we get a little Q2, if you know what I mean. Oh, I know what you mean, girl. So what are these queens talking about this week? Today in Lesbian, Rebel Wilson, lesbian for a week and already in the middle of extreme gay drama. Today in Gay, Lil Nas X has some words for the BET Awards. Today in Rainbow Capitalism, Postmates ads for bottom-friendly meals. Burger King ads for Whopper with two tops and two bottoms. (laughs) So close. Today in Homophobia, white supremacists apprehended targeting pride in Idaho. Bye, girls. Today in homophobia, Republicans try to ban drag queens. And then the fucking, what was it? Drag queen reading hour got stormed by the Proud Boys. Oh, yes. Oh, my fucking God. Mm-hmm. So fucking stupid. I don't understand those people. Like, <clears throat> I like how they don't get in trouble. But, like, everybody else gets in trouble for doing shit. Oh, yeah. Who are these white supremacists? Yeah. Like, they could walk out alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me go kill half the neighborhood. And be like, oh, I'm done. Take me to jail now. Right, because that like Mexican boy killer, he got killed. He was oh. not white. He did oh. not get escorted out. Of course. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> not to say that's a good thing. I don't know. That's all. Never mind. <laughs> but they just, always seem to realize the, the difference in the treatments. Yeah, that's the important part. Yeah, it's just very interesting. It's like how you kill like twenty six children, and you're just like, okay, I'm going to jail now. Bye. Oh wait, they were sitting outside because they were afraid to go in. Oh yeah, huh? Mm-hmm. How you? Uh, you know what? Well, cops legally don't have to like put themselves in danger. Really? Yeah. If somebody's like killing everybody, they just like, oh, oh well. Yeah, they don't have to. I didn't know that. They don't even get you, girl. For what? They are you a public property? <laughs> are you a private property? I don't know. Not anymore. I'm mm-hmm. public. <laughs> yeah, you kind of know are. what I mean. Cumtum doesn't count, bitch. <laughs> What is that? Like the neighborhood bicycle, tricycle, something. Everyone gets a ride. <laughs> but I think this this um, Idaho situation is the pure result of all the LGBT hate that we have been hearing in the news. Like this is the consequences of all these stupid ass laws and vilifying gay people. Oh, they were trying to like kill the gays. They were going to go to Pride, and they're all masked up their face covered in mm. a u-haul so there was like 31 people in a u-haul <laughs> truck <laughs> first of all trash. lesbians <laughs> but um but yeah so they were heading to uh, a pride event 
What do you think would have happened if they didn't get caught? Mm, I think they probably would have gay bashed people. I mean, why would you cover your face if that wasn't your intention? Oh, they said that was, that's not what they was going to do? Well, I don't think anyone's talking. Oh. <clears throat> Maybe those are the, the DL guys on Grindr. That's what I heard someone <laughs> on Twitter say, because they released all their faces with their mugshots. Someone was like, those are faces of people who suck dick and liked it. <laughs> <laughs> That's you, so sad and lame. I was going to say, have you seen the Burger King commercial with the two tops and the two bottoms? Yeah, I noticed that it's like, are these just straight companies just like advertising to us as like gay sexual people? To get your people? money, bitch. I'm about to get your money, bitch. You're advertising to us as like sexual beings. And it's like... I know it's Pride Month, but it's like you're focusing on gay men as sexual beings. There's like other people in the spectrum too. Is that what it is? Like these, is that how you see us? That's how you're advertising to us, bitch? Oh yeah. That's like how, what the fuck? Yeah, exactly. I just love how it's just very, I mean, like also it makes calculated. No sense. It's just like June, here's a gay commercial. Then after that, no more gay Bye. commercials. Like, I mean, it's a holiday. Yeah. Bust it out. People live for this. It's like Halloween. Yeah. But that's all this rainbow washing. All the corporations are just trying to make money. My husband brought home a pack of Oreos and it was just a very pretty like rainbow, like trans flags, everything. Mm-hmm. But you open up the Oreos and it's still the same basic ass <laughs> Oreo. And like you couldn't even go through the effort and do something like extra, like, like a rainbow Oreo exactly, oh, yeah. or something. Couldn't have just colored that cream. You did the fucking bare minimum <laughs> and that was your packaging. So fucking lame. Sad. I know. I didn't even get any Gaga cookies. What was it? The Gaga Oreo? Chromatica. Chromatica. I didn't find any of those. That's a bigger hate crime. Um, Mariah Carey has cookies for Pride Month. Are you buying them? Go buy her cookie merch. Uh, I would buy some, actually. Or do I have to go online? Yeah. I don't know. I love Mariah Carey. Hmm. I don't know if I'm going to buy those from her. I mean, (laughs) I support her, but not as a cook. I mean, does she make them herself? I I think so. (laughs) Make them in her goddamn kitchen? In her New York apartment. Right. (laughs) I saw a sticker today from haven the weed store uh-huh. and it was like they're doing like pride merch oh and i'm like who's getting that money straight people i don't know who owns yeah whoever haven. owns it yeah because it didn't even say anything like this portion of the donations go to blah 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 mm, yeah it was just what, they rainbow. Sh- what all these companies should do during pride month is donate all their fucking money to gay people yeah all this money like, they make like you know organizations that help gay mm-hmm. people all the shit they do and make off of us. It's true. Donate those sales. Why can't they give us free shit during this month? Yeah, I mean, how do you want your shit? So, like, what's the gay version of, like, 40 acres and a mule? Like, what is our reparations? Unlimited iced coffee from Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> just like a, like, yeah, it should just be, like, an unlimited, like, credit debit card to Starbucks. Um, I should at least get, like, free car services. Like oh, the yeah. vehicle? Yeah. The for oil least, changes. I don't know how the oil changes. Yeah, I think I should oh, get yeah. free free car services. I'm down for that. At least for the month of June every year. Oh, okay. Until we that's die. The, I think that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but what what would be the... How, how do you, like... How do you identify yourself? Is it like... Do you get like a... Like a gay, like... You get like a pink triangle and you just put it <laughs> on the front of your shirt. <laughs> but what if a straight person, like, 
takes it to go get their services. Oh, that's then you should be you. If you're found out, you can be charged with fraud. Or find out you're not there should be like a like an application to be gay, like to get the gay triangle. I mean, yeah, you should. Yeah, I think you should apply for it online, like how you do Obamacare. Do gays have good credit? No, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sure some do. Some do. But I don't know about this whole pink triangle. We've been there before, and it can be like a driver's license, but like well. gay license. I know, it's kind of and you gotta like done. show your gay license. Okay, gay we can license. have like a your gay card. Like a, we're gonna coordinate with the, the no. State it should just be it should just be on your phone, and then they scan it. Oh, you have to have grinder proof of. <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone's on grinder. That is true. Girl, they'd be on sniffies. But but speaking of product placement and rainbow washing, did you hear about Postmates doing a bottom friendly meals? Oh my god! Yeah, that was interesting. You see, what the, did you think of that bottom? <laughs> did you guys see the emojis they used? Like the top was the eggplant, and the, the bottom was the peach, and like the top, the eggplant had on like leather gear, and the bottom had on like panties. Oh, I didn't see. Yeah, that. so the eggplant had like a like the leather <laughs> harness. Uh huh. I don't know if you know. Yeah. I didn't see that. All I heard. I, yeah. I didn't see that. Yeah. I mean, leather play. What did you think of that bottom meal? Would you eat that? No. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> listen, girls. I'm a, would you eat that? Nah. Listen, girls. Bottoms. Shit on their dicks. Fuck <laughs> it. Like, you know, they know where they're sticking it. <laughs> and why do we have to do all the work to prepare and not shit on dicks? No. I think I've become like a professional and not preparing and not shitting on people's dicks. You just learn your body. Yeah, like I, I literally ate Thai food and then like two hours later I got fucked. And I was like, <gasps> I don't think that Thai food's that dangerous. I had hot sauce on it. Well, maybe for him that's maybe dangerous. For- but I, I think <laughs> the issue is you need to teach people how about their body and educate it. And because I think there's a whole kinds of memes about uh, like cleaning and being clean and shaming bottoms who aren't clean. And I think that sends the message that you need to starve yourself. And I think a lot of people mm. go that method and start learning the proper way of like learning your restroom habits, eating fiber, eating healthy. Because I all of those memes about like bottoms dinner and it's like a salad and oh, yeah. like the ice top cube. gets a burger, you know, or ice cube exactly. So I think that just feeds a certain perspective on it. So that's why I'm an advocate for shitting on dicks. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> What if you found out at the end of the day a gay person was behind that ad? Which one? Oh, the, they pr- it probably was. It's a top. Well, actually, <laughs> I don't know. Because I'm just, um, their marketing people probably did it. But I just wanted to read an email that we got from our, my job just now. It said, it says, let's be friends with benefits. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> listen, it's like, stop by the headquarters on, the, on Wednesday for a threesome. <laughs> friends benefits and donuts it says we dump Affleck and move on to colonial life to get that itch scratch even though we make this offer with no strings attached you should still check out the attachment blah 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 we're hosting if you really want to meet us in real life what we're only 12 feet away like you know a fucking gay marketing person did that oh yeah for sure stop by for a threesome very strange <laughs> thirsty ass bitch too <laughs> So you're being sexually harassed by your employer. Right. Job. Yeah. Interesting. By by your whole job. My whole. <laughs> well, I guess that's sex positive. <laughs> They're all about it. Rebel Wilson is a lesbian. 
Apparently. You said she's a lesbian for like two minutes and she's like already getting in trouble. She's already in trouble. She's oh. already in trouble. Oh, she's not in trouble. She's a, a center of a scandal. Mm-hmm. So an Australian newspaper was going to do an article saying that Rebel Wilson was a lesbian, but she hasn't come out pu- publicly like in Hollywood or anything. So they gave her like a few days warning that was going to be published and she came out on her own, posted on Instagram and everything. So that's the scandal. People just need to mind their own fucking business. And it was a gay guy that was in charge of the newspaper. And he was about to out her. What a dumb ass. Probably was the bottom too. (laughs) (laughs) The way she looked at her. Oh my God. Um... Yeah, that's scandalous. What trash. I know, right? I had to be a gay person, too. That's fucked up. I know. Can't even blame the straights on this one. Mm-mm. We're faulty, too. <sighs> Sad. Well, we'd like all to welcome Rebel Wilson to the lesbian club. Welcome. You U-Haul will be here soon. <laughs> oh, Republicans trying to ban drag queens. Oh, yeah. Those fucking proud boys with those drag queens today. Oh, yeah. I heard about that. That's some trash. Like, so what's going on? We're just going to get hate crimes like like legit now. That's yeah. what I was wondering. I was like, does anybody want to go to Pride? I feel like it's a dangerous spot. It's a target. It is. That's why I didn't go partly, to be honest. I feel like it's in certain areas or like certain states. I mean, I feel like there was something that happened in West Hollywood before, but they like apprehended the person that like went over there with like a gun or something. Mm. But I feel like all these like hate crimes and shit don't really like happen that much in California. I feel like that's not true. I feel no. like that it does happen and people just don't talk about yeah. it. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of like a myth that we live in some kind of like gay utopia where like we're all safe. Because I mean, people say shit to me on the street. <laughs> I've been I've been told shit on the street in fucking mm-hmm. Echo Park. Yeah. I feel like I was with you one time. They said like, fuck you, faggot. Yeah. It was me. See, you were. Yeah, I was there. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, you talking to me? I've been told stuff with my ex in LA. I'm like, okay, we're like right here. I'm like, how you know we gay? First of all, like we're just walking down the street because we were holding hands. Well, they know you're gay when they look at you. It was nighttime though; (laughs) they can't even see. They're like, damn, that's a faggot right there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna go stomp his ass. (laughs) Lord have mercy. I don't want to get hate crimed. Um, but yeah. So get your pepper spray, ladies. Yes. Oh, you bought us some to keep us safe. I'm down to take a, a karate class. Let's go take some Krav Maga or whatever just it is. Like, <laughs> just do like boxing and you'll be fine. Get a taser. That sounds like a lot of work. Didn't you yeah, let's get a taser. No, oh. I got you a pepper spray. Pepper spray, yeah. I think that's that wraps up the quick tea. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. Let's take a commercial break. Let's take a break. Let's take a break. The Queer LBC podcast is a podcast focused on four gay guys from Long Beach talking about gay stuff all gay all day. Gay for pay, gay for not a lot of pay sometimes. Donate to us. Send us some money. Send us a lot of gay-friendly money. If you're a straight person, you can donate to us also. You don't have to be gay to send us some goddamn money, bitch. We don't discriminate here. I'll take a Republican's money. Sure, why not? You can follow us on Instagram at QueerLBC to get updates on the show in the Patreon link in our bio. And I'll also send us a goddamn email, bitch, at QueerLBC at gmail.com. I want to hear from you. And it better be a motherfucking PayPal. Um, you can contact us to donate if Instagram isn't your thing. If there's anything you want to hear us talk about, if you just want to <laughs> send us some money, then, bitch, send it. And we're back. 
So today we have a very special guest with us. Today, everybody, I'd like to have a nice warm welcome for... Brent. My name is Brent. My pronouns are he, him, and your mom. <laughs> yes. And your mom. How do you identify, sir? Are you a, like a, a gay person? Are you... What are you? Yeah, I would identify as a homosexual. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've had some heterosexual tendencies, but I, I identify as a homosexual. Okay, for the most part. That's good. Okay. okay. So not a gold star gay. Not a gold star yeah. gay. Oh, what? Oh. Maybe like a bronze star gay. A bronze star. <laughs> Is that the lowest one? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Have okay. you had one of those? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being with us today, Brent. Uh, today, as you know, we're talking about sobriety and drugs in the gay community. So I guess we'll just start with nitty gritty. Tell us, uh, are you sober? What's your story? Yeah, first let me disclaim it, but um, I I choose to use a 12-step program, but I'm not like a representative Mm. of a 12-step program or a rehab. I'm just a homosexual who has found sobriety through a 12-step program. So like any idea or thought you're here is going to be my opinion. Um, So let's let's put that out there first. Um, I have six years of sobriety on July the 4th of this year. So continuous sobriety, not California sober, like Demi Lovato tried to sell, but like free of any mind altering substance Mm -hmm. for almost six years now. Yeah, that's a big thing. Like California sober. So I hear a lot of people doing that. They quit every drug, but they smoke weed to keep them off of it. So, you know, we heard a little bit of your perspective. But what do you think of California sober? I mean, I, so the thing about, um, I identify as an alcoholic and a drug addict. Um, mm-hmm. and I think the thing about, um, identifying in that capacity is, uh, it's a self-diagnosed disease, mm-hmm. right? So I have to diagnose myself and say I'm an alcoholic or an addict. So, um, I want to respect other people's journey, but for me, it's just not possible. Like I wish I can have a glass of champagne or just smoke a little weed, but yeah. that's just not my story or my experience. And I've tried it. Mm-hmm. I've tried to control and manage and manipulate to, um, be able to do those things successfully, yeah. but it just, it, it doesn't work for me. So like you've been, you're going to be sober for six years. Congrats, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, uh, congratulations. Yeah. Congrats. So tell us a little bit kind of how how it started you know i'm always kind of interested in what what is kind of the the tipping point and when you start noticing like your substance use like becoming a problem okay um so i have an interesting story so i start i would say i was an early bloomer like i was introduced to crystal meth in the summer between eighth grade and my freshman year by my brother and um like i just consider that having fun like it's Mm -hmm. very abnormal for a 14 year old to be using crystal meth let me just put that out there Mm -hmm. but like for me it was like a normal life um my parents were divorced and my dad had us over the summer and he was a teamster so he would drive out to miraloma um which is like far out there and um like he would just be gone all day Mm-hmm. And um, so I was just tie on a good one. And I, I just thought it was normal. I saw my brother doing it. My brother got in trouble and like he sold me out to my dad. He's like, oh, if you mm-hmm. think what I'm doing is bad, go look in Brent's left shoe. You know, that's where his stash is. And, um, you know, so they put me in rehab at 14. And wow. um, so I went to rehab and, um, you know, I remember them introducing me to like the 12 step program. I, I knew that 
I, I wouldn't have identified myself as an addict at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that there was a problem with a 14 year old doing meth. Um, and I thought a lot of it was like they were trying to get me to come to terms with like my homosexuality. This was 1994. Okay. Um, so it was like a different, it literally was a different world back then. And they were like, if you can fix that, then you probably won't have this problem. Mm. And um, so I came out of that rehab and um, I like stayed away from drugs for a minute, but then was introduced to alcohol. You know, at 14, it's hard to get people to buy you drinks. And like, I look like a 12 year old, 80 pound twink um, at the age of like 15, 16, 17. So I couldn't hustle drinks, Mm -hmm. Um, but I was introduced to alcohol and like mushrooms and acid. And um, my parents sent me to live with my grandma in Missouri. And um, what happened was like there, I found all the kids that partied like me. So I was surrounding myself with people who like did everything that I did, mm-hmm. right? And so I was just having fun and my drinking was fun for a long time. Like I partied and I kicked it and it was enjoyable and I was fun to be around and um, I was having a good time. And I would say like the first part, I got sober twice. I got sober at the age of 25 and then again at the age of 36. But around 25, my father passed. He was hit and killed on his motorcycle. And um, like I couldn't even show up to him being in the hospital, dying in a coma sober. So that was like the first time I was like, okay, this might be a problem. Like here's Mm -hmm. a pivotal moment in my life. My dad is literally dying in a hospital bed and I can't even show up to this sober. And um, that's when I decided to get sober the first time and entered into another rehab and um had a good a good stretch of sobriety right but that was like um i always say i didn't think i was an alcoholic then but i definitely knew at that point i was a drug addict because i was doing a lot of coke i was like literally smoking crack like i am Mm -hmm. a bona fide crack addict and um i think the message i want to relay on that is like Uh, alcoholism and addiction does not discriminate it doesn't socioeconomic status doesn't matter the color of your skin doesn't matter your sexuality doesn't matter like if you have it you have it right so i was um I was sober for like three years and I was like, yeah, Coke is a problem. Like I definitely love the way cocaine smells and I can't do that. But uh, I never really conceded to myself that I was an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I had that little voice in the back of my mind saying like, oh, but you didn't ever drink, right? Like you, you weren't like a fall down drunk. And Mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is I never picked up alcohol because I knew like Coke and crack would do it better for me. Mm -hmm. So I never had that experience with alcohol. And at three years sober, um, I made the decision to drink. And, um, that was in 2009. And so I, um, went out and got more experience as they say. And, um, you know, shortly after it's a progressive disease, I was back to like tying on a good one and doing all the things I said I would never do and trying out drugs that I hadn't did and, or done. And, um, you know, it was a rough eight year period before I made it back. And, um, this time it wasn't like, I didn't like lose a bunch of shit. I I call it like an emotional bankruptcy where I was Mm -hmm. like, I can't go on living like this, but like, this is how I'm going to go on living. And that was July 4th of 2016. I woke up and, um, I didn't really make a decision. I think there was some divine intervention and a moment of grace that I had, Um, that was able to get me back to like the program that I had started eight years previous. And so that was kind of like my story up until then. Um, and yeah, that was almost six years ago, Mm -hmm. which is a trip and a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. So you did mention that your brother introduced you to drugs. So like at that age, so you said you were 14. Yeah. So like, were you not like scared or like, no, I shouldn't do this. Or like, were you just like, well, my brothers are doing it. Like it's safe. I can, I'm gonna try it. 
Because I feel like at me at 14, I would be like, uh, no, bitch, get away from me. <laughs> Funny. So I have like, I, I don't know, they might call it oppositional defiant disorder now, but like I, so I was in inter- like the motto in one of the programs I go to is like, if you're one of us, it's going to lead to jails, institutions and death, right? Like mm-hmm. those are the three options for a real alcoholic or a drug addict if you have this thing. And um, like I saw my first institution at the age of 11. I was in fourth grade. My parents put me in a lockdown mental ward because I was like a total sissy and wanted to play with Barbies and like... Wow. Yeah. So like I have, I had this, like, I'm going to prove to you no matter what. So like I was doing shit, like watching set it off and wanting to like, I Mm. wanted to be that experience of like them trying to get the gay out of me through a mental institution Mm. was like, I'm going to be anyone, but this person who you're saying that, um, I am or you don't want me to be and so like my parents like went to the yacht club and like they were very bougie and I wanted to like know every lyric to Bone Thugs and Harmony so I put on this Mm -hmm. like persona and I like wanted to be someone else like I was like a real thug like I ironed like pleats in my dickies (laughs) and like wore Nike Cortez and like hang out with all the sisters on the basketball team and you know because they protected me in junior high right and so I don't think there was a a, the amount of healthy fear that I should have had because like it was just me trying to be anyone other than this gay kid that you told me I shouldn't be mm-hmm. right so I took on that persona and I was just like no I'm doing it and I did it I want to wear that for Halloween I'm gonna be some dickies <laughs> that's how that was a cute moment did you like slip yeah. back your hair um I'm trying to remember that time it was like real short it was buzzed yeah it's like slick back, a wife beater at school. Like, like I wanted to dickhead. ride the bus everywhere. Like my parents are like, we have cars and we will take you. And I was like, no, I want to be anything but who you want me to be. So I wanted to be like from the streets. Like it was a thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So I took on that persona and like drugs get like I was always real um, turned on by like when watching movies like crime and shit and that grimy gangster, like coke wielding, drug dealing, prostitution, sex, like that always like was some something I was attracted to. Mm. So when the opportunity presented itself to do drugs, I was like, yeah, this is the life. This is what oh. I was made mm-hmm. for. So like when you did drugs, did you do like, did you just like stick to one thing at a time or like, which would be like, I'm smoking crystal meth, I'm gonna do shrooms later and then like, I don't know, smoke weed an hour after that or was it just like, the same drug consistently and then i don't know like you change or did you like upgrade like it's interesting because i did crystal meth at 14 and i came out of rehab and i was like i will never do this again like Mm -hmm. crystal meth is cd and i didn't know the attachment at the time that i would find later on of like the pnp world and like Mm -hmm. having Mm -hmm. casual sex and so Mm -hmm. for about 10 years i probably didn't even touch crystal meth or think about it you know and i found cocaine and i thought that was a little more classier so Mm -hmm. i went through a period so in junior high in middle school I went through a period of like um, Grateful Daddy follow the fish era like mushrooms and psychedelics mm-hmm. and a lot of pot mm-hmm. and uh, my parents sent me to live in St. Louis Missouri and there's um, a lot left to be desired when you live there so like these kids were out drinking natural light in the woods doing keg stands and oh, smoking pot so okay. I had that phase and then um, 
I got a fake ID at like 18. I went to the DMV and, oh, God bless Chris, rest his soul. I worked with him at the Baskin Robbins and I took his little information down to the DMV and it was before they cut like the credit card IDs. Like they would take your picture oh. and then put information and mm. mail it to you. It was like a flimsy paper one. And oh. so I got to go to the gay bars at like 18 with the state ID, right? And um, it was there that I found cocaine. And I was like, oh. I felt like I made it. Have, have way too much to drink, do a line of coke, be able to drive home home um i don't condone drinking or driving drinking and driving i don't prefer to drive but i I don't condone it but um so that's when i was introduced to cocaine and i did uh, a lot of cocaine and um it wasn't until i got sober and then relapsed again that i found crystal meth and like really was introduced to this subculture of like gay life where there's people on the apps and they're doing the pmp and they're twisting Mm -hmm. the pipe and they're Mm -hmm. you know really getting high on meth and it's very closely tied to sex and um so i tried that like that life wasn't for me i wasn't really into it and um because i like to isolate i don't want to be around people when i'm loaded like i want to like numb my feelings and be by myself that's what Mm -hmm. kind of drug addict i am yeah and Mm -hmm. um so it was like a um the trajectory with i mean one's not classier than the other but like i think crack and crystal meth were probably pretty equal and probably pretty gnarly for my experience i was gonna say so like what does it feel like (laughs) to like do meth because like i haven't ever done anything really harder than weed so i don't really know what other like experiences like feel like yeah, so I don't want to glamorize it, and I don't encourage anyone to go out oh, and get, get the I feeling of meth, but it's like, it's never the same after the first time, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, like, growing up, I was always medicated because I was hyperactive, and they were like, give him the Ritalin. It was Ritalin mm-hmm. back in the 90s, mm-hmm. and um, before Adderall was cool, and uh, so I always had this adverse reaction because when I did, like, a stimulant, it would, like, pull me back. It would level me out and, like, take me from this manic high into, like, a uh, air quote normal high right and Mm -hmm. so there's this euphoria that comes with doing meth um that makes you lose your inhibitions right so it's like it's very dangerous very dangerous drug and um and extremely addictive Mm -hmm. right because it releases like dopamine in your brain at at, at, in mass quantities Mm -hmm. like it depletes you for whatever dopamine and good feeling stores you have in your brain it releases like that for like Mm -hmm. months at a time and it's really hard to get get those levels back yeah and um so it was like it was you know i use drugs um to like numb right to not feel Mm -hmm. and um and those drugs did it on a grand scale Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Kind of on that note, have you seen like euphoria? I'm, I'm wondering and curious how you view euphoria and because it's been accused of kind of glamorizing drug culture and, and drug use. Okay, I thought she should win the award and she did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought she was brilliant in it. Oh, and I think mm-hmm. um, if you're someone like me who has a drug addiction, it's like an accurate portrayal of mm-hmm. like how gnarly the path is, like the emotional highs, the lows, the isolation, the feelings, the um, suicidal thoughts and tendencies. Um, so, I mean, there was, like I said, like that part of the streets I was attracted to is represented with like Fez in Euphoria, right? Mm-hmm. That like, thug uh drug dealing danger component like that's attractive um but there comes a time when you in your um addiction and alcoholism cross this invisible line where like you can't go back to it being just for fun Mm -hmm. like something happens 
Yeah. So, I mean, I thought the show is a very accurate portrayal. And I talked to people that are um, drug addicts and alcoholics. And I, I think one of the reasons it bothers them so much or strikes a nerve is because the relatability, them mm. being able to see like their struggle in some of the characters. So, I mean, season two was kind of weak. That ending three parts for that play. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm glad Lexi finally had her moment in her show. <laughs> but, like, three parts, come on. <laughs> I thought it was actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. I watched it after it all aired. So, I was like, oh, my God, this is so fucking good. This is amazing. Do y'all, yeah. Have you seen Euphoria? Yeah. I have seen clips of it. It seems so dramatic that I can't stand to watch it. Yeah. It's really good. Like, it's. Zendaya is really good actress. I know yeah. she sure is. She's amazing, but it is intense. Like with the the huge like emotional scenes for me, it's very triggering because I I grew up with someone who was an addict, so mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to kind of hear this perspective because I I live opposite opposite perspective of of like seeing someone high and and the harm that can cause sometimes and Mm -hmm. the trauma it can cause sometimes. Yeah, other people, especially Mm -hmm. like I'm a tornado. Like I rip through people's lives when I'm an active alcoholic and an addict and I will drink and use drugs at uh, no matter what the cost, Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, so it's a very selfish disease, alcoholism and drug addiction. And it's like when you're in the midst of it, you don't see how it's affecting other people and you can barely see how it's affecting um, yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a very, it's like, um, it's a disease. It yeah. literally is a disease. Like mm-hmm. the medical society of America, I don't, the AMA or whatever, like they classify alcoholism as a disease, right? Like mm-hmm. cancer, yeah. except for alcoholism, there's no cure. Like yeah. they suggest abstinence, but like, it's like a pickle analogy. Like, um, when you're a cucumber and turn into a pickle, like you have to be a pickle. You cannot go back to being a cucumber. So mm-hmm. when you're a normie who drinks regularly and then you cross this invisible line into alcoholism and turn into an alcoholic, you just can't go back to being the cucumber. Right. And I think that's where um, a lot of people struggle getting sober. That's where I struggled getting sober is um, thinking that I can drink and use drugs normally, like mm-hmm. going back to the cucumber. But like, I'm a pickle. <laughs> yeah, that, kind of, <laughs> that kind of reminds me back to like the California sober thing where yeah. it's like, even though you're like, quote unquote, off all these other things and you're still doing weed, it's still like another like crutch that you have. Like you mm-hmm. say, like you like you don't see how it's like affecting your own life, and it's kind of like I feel like that's where I'm at in my own process. Because even today, I was talking to my my Kaiser, and we're they're hooking me up with a therapist, and so then they were asking me things, and then they were asking about my drug use, and then I was like, oh yeah, I'm definitely addicted to like weed, and then they were like, okay, we're gonna like definitely book you in with our addiction counselor and i'm like oh like i'd even ask for that <laughs> i was like i just wanted a therapist i wasn't trying to get help <laughs> and then i was like okay well i guess i'm getting help now i'm at that point where i know that my life could be a lot better if i like stopped smoking like i feel like it's definitely taking it's definitely harming myself more than it's helping me my sobriety journey started uh, started when I started getting honest, right? When I started saying mm-hmm. like, okay, this is a problem, right? Like yeah. this is not normal behavior. Like um, I had an injury. I got, uh, it's when I relapsed, I got in a fight with a refrigerator and I lost, <laughs> right? Like, and um, I ended up in a coma for a week. Like they almost had to amputate my leg and I was in the hospital and Damn like, um, it was gnarly. And um, 
I was in a coma for a week. My kidneys shut down. I was on dialysis. And, you know, when I came out of that experience, my first thought wasn't like, oh, this is a huge consequence. Like, this is a direct result of my drinking and using. My thing was like, oh, I can now sell these pain pills they're going to give me to get mm-hmm. what I really want. Like, mm-hmm. that's a true addict mind. Like, you, consequences were never enough to get me sober. Like, mm-hmm. I had bad shit happen, but they were never enough to be like, oh, okay, my drinking and using is a problem. So I think that self-identification and actually getting honest and saying this is um, a problem is a good first step in the process. And, you know, you might go through um, your little inpatient program or whatever they do at Kaiser and then um, get armed with some facts about drug addiction and be like, I'm not an addict. And that happens. But being able to have like a full knowledge of what an alcoholic and an addict is and then being able to determine um based on your own truth and experience, what that means to you, I think is a really good place to start. And I implore anyone who's going through the feelings of like, hey, um, am I drinking too much? Am I smoking too much weed? Is this affecting my life? Um, Like, don't go based on someone saying you need help. Go based on your experience and then knowledge of what a real alcoholic and addict is like mm-hmm. i never got sober when people told me you're going to rehab and they told me a lot it was like Girl, <laughs> you are going to rehab do you know where you're going you're going to rehab um i never got sober then i've mm-hmm. been to rehab a couple times and it wasn't until um july 4th of 2016 when i woke up and i said something has to change and had that moment of grace that i actually had a successful stint at sobriety the activities that we do as homosexuals like gay shit um, hot girl shit um, revolves around drinking like I'll just say that's what it is yeah, it's yeah. like let's go to the bar let's do karaoke at the bar let's go for Sunday fun day and a lot of that revolves around drinking so I think there's this like incubator of you know um, heavy poor alcohol coupled with like this radical idea of sexuality that we have and being able to lose inhibitions and being able to fit in and um, being able to let some of that shame and guilt that uh, me as a homosexual I can self-identify have um, I think that alcohol helps with that but it also fuels um, something else so if I'm not taking care of this like shame or guilt or um, emotions I have um, based on being gay, then I'm using alcohol to fuel it. And then that could be a dangerous intersection. But um, I still go out and have fun. Like I don't Mm -hmm. drink, but I'll I'll go out. And um, I was talking about it earlier, like my benchmark for when it's time to leave my uh, friends that are having a good time drinking is like, it's time for me to leave when someone's crying fighting or falling down or like Mm -hmm. any combination of those three and that happens quite a bit but i i just know it's my time to leave but you can have fun in sobriety for sure yeah i was gonna say i feel like most of my gay interactions there's always either alcohol or like some kind of drugs involved even thinking back to like being with your gay friends like when you were younger like all you did was go to the club or at least Mm -hmm. that was like my experience it's like all you did was go to the club like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, maybe Monday, maybe Tuesday, maybe Wednesday. Any day. (laughs) Any fucking day. You'd be at the fucking club. What are you doing? Getting fucking fucking hammered out of your fucking mind. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's always that. And it's like, it's never not that. We don't have a lot of sober activities. (laughs) It's true. Like, I think I've been hearing also online people talking about, like, we need, like, more, like, sober spaces. Like, we need more, like, gay cafes. Yeah. Or, like, just not gay bars. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But yeah, I feel like our culture definitely centers around alcohol, specifically around alcohol, like 
like publicly around alcohol. Yeah. Because it's like anything that you see on like TV even. Mm. It's like mm-hmm. it's always sponsored by an alcohol Stoli, brand too. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. like the RuPaul's Drag Race. When exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're deliberating. Like they go backstage or go, mm-hmm. you know, behind whatever. And then like they have drinks waiting for them. So it's just like you. It's been taught to yeah. you. I mean. Yeah. And I think that goes back to our roots. Like gay culture was in the bars. Like pre-Stonewall, that's where people met, you know, or they cruised. And I think that just speaks to what Brett was talking about, kind of that internalized homophobia Mm -hmm. and how people need to cope with these strong ass feelings and substances do the job like alcohol does the job. Mm -hmm. And I think people are just coping and and trying to get through life because it's hard. Living is hard sometimes. It is. And uh, I think there's like add a layer with the homosexuality. But like, it's funny that people used to cruise the bars. Like I miss like the cruise spots at the public park. (laughs) That's that's what like when I couldn't do drugs or alcohol as a kid, like that's what I used to feel like this and and validate me was like, Mm -hmm. I would go hustle the park bathroom. Right. And that, like I said earlier, I like, I look like a twink. Um, well, well into my early twenties, I was like maybe five, six, a hundred pounds soaking wet. And so like, there was a lot of benefit that came with that. But I used to hustle the old guys at the park bathroom and they would pay me. Right. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so I missed those days, but like sex also, I've had to do some work around that after getting sober about how I use, um, sex as validation or like how or external, I'll, I'll say sex because that was a big thing in my early sobriety was being able to one, have sex sober, um, was was a uh, tricky right because i have all this experience up to almost 36 years of life having sex being loaded um so that was a new one but mm. i started realizing that i used outside um external things to validate how i was feeling on the inside so after i got sober like sex was a big thing i had to you know look at mm-hmm. and um and and work through and that's just a part of the process being sober cuz you remove the drugs and alcohol and i still have the same problems i had I'm just not drunk or high, right? So I have to start working and addressing yeah. those like to really get to the core of the issue. And that's when the real work begins, when you remove the drugs and alcohol. I do have a question <clears throat> before we keep going. Um, one, does your partner need to be sober? Oh, and then question. two, how do you feel in, situa- in situations where it's always like you're, you know, hang out with friends and there's like drinking involved and stuff like that? Yeah, so um, I I have a partner. I love him to death, and he's not sober. Um, I would classify him as a normie. You know, he has, um, which is like someone who can drink or use drugs normally who's still a cucumber, Mm -hmm. right? So he's a cucumber, and um, he, thankfully, he's had some experience with um, alcoholism and uh, recovery in his family, right? He has some immediate family members that are sober and like have multiple years sober. Um, He has one uncle that's 42 years sober and some aunts that are up at 20 years sober. So like he came with this understanding of what this disease looks like. And I thought that was helpful, but I feel like if I'm doing the work on myself to be part of this recovery process and like really do the do in the program that, um, that shouldn't bother me and it doesn't. So it. some people are like, no alcohol in my house. I don't want a partner that drinks and that's their journey. You know, for me, it, you know, there's pot in my house right now. There's uh, wine, there's vodka, you know, there are things in, in the house, but like I'm in a recovered state of mind where like, that's okay. So like okay. the partner, yeah. And, and everyone has like, 
there's people across the spectrum. There are people who are like, no drugs or alcohol. I don't want to date anyone who drinks and that's cool and it works for them. Um, but for me, it works, you know, and um, my friends drink like, you know, some of my friends and uh, they like to drink <laughs> and, you know, it's their thing. And the, yeah. uh, the thing I what I learned most this time in sobriety is you have to let people have their own journey and you have to meet people mm -hmm. where they're at. And um, like I said, alcoholism is a self-diagnosed disease. There are some people that I'm like, I say, hey, I'm saving a chair for you at one of my meetings. Like, I got a spot for you. Like, I see you, but joking, right? But not. And um, I, I was just saying, you know, it's time for me to leave when someone's crying, fighting, falling down. So mm -hmm. you'll catch me on the Sunday fun day after kickball eating pizza. But, you know, it gets about 4.30 and I'm out, you know, Um so it just, it really depends. Do I have a reason for being there, right? And if it's to like kiki and have fun with my friends, then that's cool. But if there's like some ulterior motive where I need to be in the bar, um, that might be sketch, you know, I really need to um, do some work and look at that. So am I a normie? Am I a cucumber? <laughs> <laughs> Are you? I think so. I mean, you. you seem to give up the alcohol pretty easily. Do you I, have any problems? Like, you have no, no withdrawal? I thought, um, <laughs> withdrawal. No. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, Are you shaking, girl? <laughs> I actually, just if y'all want to know Queer RBC, I've been 44 days alcohol free. Um, I feel I, like we should, like, clap for that. Because that's a I'm thing. Not six years like you, but um, I thought it would be harder. Like, cause I hang like everybody that I hang out with, all the activities is just drinking all the goddamn time. So I thought like it would be like harder for me like give up, but it was just like no, I'm not. And then I think like here people be like you're gonna like have a drink, you're gonna have a drink. I'm just like now I'm really not, bitch. <laughs> I mean I wasn't before, but now I'm really not gonna have one at all. Yeah, it's actually been fine. Has anyone been pressuring you to drink? No, that's good. People do me. That's funny because um, like the word on the street is I'm sober and I don't drink and people know that. And I've had people like ask me if I want to drink and I'm like, no, no, I, I'm sober. Like, oh, do you want to hit this weed pen? I'm like, no, no, I'm sober. And literally you asked me that last week. And yeah. and there's been times where I've like been at the bar and I've sent someone to the bar for like, I like a tonic water with a lemon. And I've had a drink come back like gin and tonic at the Falcon. And I've taken a drink and like, as soon as I put it in my mouth, knew it was gin and tonic and I spit it on the floor at the Falcon. So I'm responsible for a little portion, one person, one half percent of that mess on the floor at the Falcon. But, like, I've had that experience, too, where, like, I have taken a drink and had to spit it out. So that's interesting. But I, I don't think people are aware or some sometimes people have problems respecting boundaries. So I get that. Yeah. Oh, do you want to drink? Or you're going to do you feel like since you've been sober, you've been less fun? Or I won't say sober. Do you think that since you've been not drunk, you've been, like, less fun? Okay, so that's how I feel. I feel like. Am I still the fun guy that people likes? Like, you know, because I'm just you like, were never fun. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I do feel like and then also like I'm very quiet. Like What's, when? <laughs> so when I'm drinking, I'm very like outgoing. But when I'm not drinking or if I don't like know people and like the people I hang out with talk to every fucking body, I'm like that gives me like anxiety. Like, Don't leave me like. <laughs> Who do I, what am I, no. You are. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just get like so like anxious. Like I, I hate it. I notice that I, I feel like to like have fun and like enjoy mm. myself. And now I'm like, now I need to 
actually learn how to enjoy myself not being drunk. So now I just get like fake. Um, <laughs> I was at the bar and ordered t- soda water. Mocktail. A splash of crayon. I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, I have a drink, y'all. I don't know. I feel like it's just like to feel like you're fitting in. I love a Shirley Temple, sis. So <laughs> I guess I like that. I'm like, oh, like I'm fitting in with you guys. I'm like, I have a cocktail fitting too. in with mm-hmm. you guys, even though it's nothing. I noticed that like when I first got sober and before I was in this relationship and was out at the bars, like if I would uh, hold like a can of sugar free Red Bull, which is usually my go to um, that people wouldn't talk to me. Like people wouldn't approach me, people wouldn't speak to me. But like if I got the tonic water with lemon in a glass, like people weren't afraid to come up. So I don't know if like not drinking is a barrier for people or like or what that's about. But I I did have that experience when I first got sober that people yep. just did not want. They were not into it. But it also could be I have like really bad major resting bitch face too. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's an experience I had. So what did you like do to get help? Like what was the actual process? Okay. From like once you already like made a decision, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, what is like, so what was like day one of like, I'm going to be sober now. Okay. So like it was July 4th of 2016 and I remember it cause it was a Monday and, um, it was divine intervention for sure. And I say it was a moment of grace because I had like, I have this experience where I drink and use drugs and I say like, Oh, like I, I think I can stop. And like, I have, I, I say, okay, it's, I'm going to stop on Monday. Right. And, um, or like I used to go out and I'm, I'm going to eat good this week. I don't need to drink or do drugs. I'm going to eat good. So I stock my refrigerator with like the finest vegetables and like, I'm going to cook this week and I'm going to will myself to good health and like re you know, like, um, cure my body with these foods and you know the thought would come and I'd start getting loaded and then the next week I would have done so much coke and not ate that I'd have a spoiled you know hundred dollars worth of groceries and so I always had this idea that I could like really like self-will or the self-knowledge of me being an addict would fix my alcoholism and drug addiction and I always joke because it's a money because I used to like do these things where I would spend a lot of money smoking crack on a Friday night and I'd open up a paper planner and I would write like $125 and that's a lie because it would be a lot more and I'd write that on Friday and then Saturday would come and I'm like I'm not going to do this but I like I have this mental obsession and I have to right and then I would um, say I'm not going to do it I'm not going to do it and I'd go out and do it anyway because I don't have any defense um, any mental defense and um, then I'd write like 250 and then Sunday would come and I'm like oh okay but it's just Sunday and like the weekend's almost over and like I'm gonna get right on Monday and then I'd like try to shame myself and I like total up how much I spent on Friday Saturday Sunday and I look at that number and try to like shame or guilt myself into stopping and like Monday would come and I'd be like today's the day and like I just I I don't have any power like me on my own power cannot stop me from drinking and like I want to be able to and like uh, you know if you hook me up to a lie detector and say Brent do you want to stop drinking and doing drugs I would say yes and like the lie detector would be like he really means it Mm -hmm. but I have like this mental obsession this disease in my mind that tells me like you can go out and drink again and it will be fine it will be different Mm -hmm. than the last time and I do it every single time I buy the lie that I tell myself (laughs) like that's the tricky baffling thing about being a drug addict is I buy the lie. And um, so on this date, it was a Monday, it was July 4th. um, I got up and I don't know what it was, but I just had this like feeling that like, okay, this is it. Like 
I can't pull this off successfully anymore. And I called some guy and like, um, in one of the programs I go to, we have like what you call a sponsor who's like a step guide who um, has a similar experience to you and like has a working knowledge of the steps. And, um, you know, it's just someone that you can like lean on and get honest with. And, you know, I called him and I was like, hey, I think it's time. And that's a lie. I text him because, you know, who calls people anymore? But I text him and I was like, hey, I need to get sober. And um, he sent me a text back and was like, okay, meet me at this place. And I went to a meeting, right? And um, on July 4th, 2016, I sat in a meeting and um, like heard this message of hope that I hadn't heard before. And I ha- I've heard it before because like when you go to rehab, they say, get on this bus and we're going to take you to a meeting. And, you know, um, they introduce you to this program, um, 12 step program. But, um, so I, I heard a new message this night and like, even with my experience of being so desperate and actually reaching out and asking for help, I still had like these old ideas, right? Like I was like, I don't know if I'm really one of you. Um, like even with this experience, all the things I've tried before and, um, you know, so I just got to work with him and started going through the 12 step process. And, you know, that consists of like going to meetings, working steps, like calling other people. Um, there's like a process that, um, that you go through to like connect to a power greater than yourself is like the premise of, you know, uh, most of the 12 step programs that are out there. And there's a a million of them, heroin anonymous, cocaine anonymous, crystal meth anonymous, um, alcoholics anonymous, uh, gamblers anonymous, overeaters anonymous. There's like literally a 12 step program for everything. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, you go through this process and, uh, you start identifying some things and you start getting honest or I started getting honest and realized that like, I have tried to get myself sober for the better part of, you know, uh, at the time, I'm bad at math, 22 years. You know, I'd been drinking and using drugs since 14 and I was 36 and, um, like I didn't have access to a power greater than myself and I had to really find that. And, um, so it's like a spiritual program coupled with doing some 12 steps and, um, like it's an altruistic effort too. You have to give back. Like part of this process is like that guy sponsors me and I have to do the same in return to keep my sobriety. And it's something I take very seriously and it does, um, it's work like it's legit like a part-time job that you clock in and don't get paid for except you get paid in grace and sobriety but like Mm -hmm. i'm out there like you know i want to stay sometimes on sunday but i got a meeting or a commitment i need to go to so it's it's um it's a journey so it's like doing the 12 steps like really figuring out if you have this thing and um you have to do some work like it it literally requires work so you were like a functional addict. I was never a functional addict. Sis. No? I got in a fight with the refrigerator and they almost cut my leg off. Okay. But like, <laughs> but like did you like like go to work and like pay your rent and like, like I mean, yeah, so like I um I love crack cocaine. I know that seems like very weird for like my I'm a, a you know, a cis white man and I love crack cocaine. Like and it's very like street drug and um like I would try to lie. I can never pull it off. Like I, like you can tell on my face what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking. Like I have one of those faces that even though I like Botox the shit out of it, like, you know what is going on in my mind. So I like show up to work and I be like, you know, um, had barely slept the night before and would go to work. And then I'd be like, Oh, I get off work and be like, I need to get high. 
right? And then I'd be like, oh, the 22 freeway, like coming west, like that shit is bumper to bumper. So I like get in the carpool lane, right? Just as a solo driver, get in the carpool lane and like flick my blinker on so I could say like, oh, I mistakenly got, if I got pulled over, I mistakenly got in this lane (laughs) and like I'm trying to get back over. But really I was trying to get home to my drugs and get high. So I Mm. mean, um, that's not functional, Right. But I would tell myself, like, I'm out here killing it. Like, I got a job. Like, I graduated. Um, I went to college later later in life. I got a trade right out of high school. Um, I got a cosmetology license. And I hated that. Uh, people are so draining um, about their hair, especially. And um, so at uh, 28, I went to college. Like, I did community college for two years. I got into a bachelor's program at a private university. And I graduated with really good grades and I did all that loaded. So like things like oh, that, okay. yeah, things like that kept me from getting sober because my mind was telling me if you can accomplish these things, like I'm an educated addict now, you know, <laughs> if you can accomplish these things, if you can do four years of college, you are not an addict, right? So I wouldn't say functional is hard. It's like all relative to your to mm. your experience, you know? Um, I was never a functional addict. I was a mess, M-E-S-S. Come on, <laughs> hot mess express with her degree. <laughs> so, what are these twelve steps? Um, so they differ, right? I mean, but um, essentially, it's um, like, do you want all twelve of them? I probably, I probably could recite them off the top of my head, but it's um, like a process to connect to a power greater than yourself. And like, I'll just go through the first one because oh. that's the most important one. I feel like is like we admitted we were powerless over fill in the blank and that our lives have become unmanageable. Like, so we admitted we were powerless over pot and my life had become unmanageable. And that's part of getting honest. Like if I'm admitting that, like that's the first step is like really admitting and getting honest with yourself. Um, I think because like the alcoholic mind is tricky. Like even admitting I was powerless and my life had become unmanageable and like taking that step before in 2005 and, um, like not being honest, really the rest of the 12 steps or the 11 that come after don't matter because if I'm not doing that sufficiently and I don't believe I have a problem and my life is unmanageable, um, then I have no reason to get sober, Mm. right? And um, I think what separates um, an addict and an alcoholic, in my opinion, is like how far gone you are, like, and do you require spiritual help? Like, if you can quit, like, there's a moderate drinker, there's a hard drinker, and then there's a real alcoholic, right? A moderate drinker can like take it or leave it, can be like their trainer can say, hey, we need you to stop drinking because you want to see results. And they're like, cool, and stop drinking, right? And then there's a hard drinker that, like, with sufficient reason can quit drinking. Like, their boyfriend or wife comes home and says, you're drinking too much and I can't handle it. And, like, with a sufficient reason, a medical reason, or, like, you know, something's wrong with you, you have to stop drinking. And they can say, oh, okay, and not drink. But, like, the real alcoholic, like, has no power, choice, and control in the matter. Like, I don't get a say... Um, when I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink every single time. Like my mind will set me up to drink every single time and tell me these lies again that I buy. So, um, I think part of the 12 step process, you have to do an inventory. Like you have to first realize that you need help and that your own human power, your human power has failed you. Like that's the premise of one, two, and three step four. You do like a moral inventory, um, where you write down like, um, 
things that you're resentful about and things you're afraid of and you do a thorough sex inventory and um, you really get a look at your behavior and how it's like your behavior. Like I say, I'm resentful at this person for these reasons and what it affects. And um, then I get to set all that aside and then I get to get honest about um, what my part was in it. Shitty things happened to me when I was a kid, right? Like there's some um, sexual abuse when I was younger, right? And I don't have a part in that, but I'm still resentful at the person who did it. But my part is I've been fucking carrying that around for the better part of, you know, 30 years and not letting it go. That's my part. So I do that. And then I take this moral inventory and I read it to another person. And then, you know, I um, have to make restitution for harm that I've done. I make a list of people that I've hurt. Right. And, um, and then became willing to make amends to them. Like I, I get to go to people and say like, Hey, I was drinking. I don't even say I'm drinking and using, Hey, say I, I caused you harm. You know, this is the harm I'm clear on, right? And then I have to ask them. I say, like, is there anything else I've left out? And I give them space to say, like, yeah, you stole money from me. Or you, you know, one thing I was really ashamed of for the longest time was my grandma was on um, her deathbed. She was dying of cancer, right? And um, I had came out from St. Louis, and um, she was on, like, morphine, at the time and uh like she rather ate pot like she was doing the weed thing to Mm. like help her cancer but like i was in her sock drawer stealing her morphine to get high Mm -hmm. right and um like that was a big thing and she died before i got sober so i can't make that amends to her and be like hey i stole from you when you were literally dying like i was so sick in my disease um that I stole from you, like, how do I make this right? And so with her, I make a living amends. I try to do, you know, live my life to the best of my ability on a daily basis where I'm not getting loaded, where I'm not stealing from people, where I'm returning the shopping cart when I go grocery shopping, you know, stuff like that. Um, Cause that's a lot of shame you carry around. So it's part of like the 12 step process to answer your question in the most long roundabout way. <laughs> it's like, it's like repacking these ideas that you're, you, you, these ideas and conceptions you have of yourself and the shame and the guilt that you carry. And it's a process. Like it doesn't happen the first trip through the steps. Like it's a, a multi-trip process through the steps. Cause that person who stole morphine from his dying grandma that had cancer is not me. That's Mm -hmm. me on drugs and alcohol. That's me in my sickness. That's me in my disease. And I don't use that lightly or use it as an excuse because that irritates the shit out of me. I know people that are like, you know, like messy and have bad behavior and like, oh, I'm an alcoholic. But if you have that knowledge of your alcoholism, you cannot use that as an excuse, right? But I know that that person is not me today. And then the final step in that process is um, really giving back, like helping other people, Right. Sharing my experience, strength and hope with other people in hopes that like if they have this thing, I can set them on the path or like get them to their God. And, um, you know, that's like the magic of the 12 step program is really being able to like give back what's been so literally freely given to me. Like a guy took his time the first year that I was sober and sat down with me once a week for two hours. And we talked about alcoholism. We talked about my experience. We talked about drug addiction. We talked about his experience. Like someone did that for me, you know? And so I have to, uh, I have to give that back. It's a, quite the process. I mean, you could Google the 12 steps literally of anything and read, read about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you're, I don't know. I always feel like if you're questioning or have um, like an inkling or like an internal like intuition, like 
nine times out of nine, it's usually right. You know? So if you're, if you're sitting here thinking like, Oh, this guy's story is crazy and wild. And it was, and I didn't smoke crack or I didn't do heroin or I didn't steal from my grandma. Like all the stories of alcoholics and addicts aren't parallel and everyone has their own bottom. Right. And Mm. it has to be your experience. Like I get sober on my truth. Bottom line, I don't get sober on someone else's truth. I get sober on my truth and my experience. But that intuition is something. And, it, and it's like, it, there's something to say for that. I stole from my grandma once. What did you steal? <laughs> <laughs> and did she whoop your ass? <laughs> I was 10 years old and she, um, <laughs> I was living with her. And she had like a, she bought like a men's watch. And I stole it off the table. <laughs> and she asked like, where did the watch at? And I was just like, I don't know. And I had stole it. <laughs> But I can never wear the watch because I live with her. So I will only wear it at school. And then, like, before I got home, I would take the watch off and, like, put it up. And then she, Grandma, if you're listening. I'm yeah, sorry. you owe her an immense. <laughs> <laughs> Still that, whoever's watch that was. You mentioned, like, when you see people in the clubs and you're like, oh, I'm saving you a seat at the meeting. <laughs> what, are those warning, what are those warning signs? I mean, I was. <sighs> What are the warning signs? Like three people in the bathroom at one time. That's a warning sign. (laughs) 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 Um, Like incoherent. Like there's no reason you should be out in public incoherent. Like face down, you know, on slur. Like if we're having the same conversation and you've come up to me three times and you've said the exact same thing three times, like that might be a warning sign. Like I did that a couple of times. Social social cues. It's hard to say because like alcoholism and addiction is really a self-diagnosed disease. Mm. So there's, I mean, there are warning signs like. I used to do things like lose my car or like where are my keys? I lost my phone. I've mm. had broken fo- broken phones a lot. You know, like a broken phone might be a war- um, multiple broken phones. Um, leaving your card at the bar, <laughs> not <laughs> checking out your bar tab. Um, what was a big one for me? Like I used to um, in St. Louis, we had taxi cabs like before Uber. And um, I want to continue drinking and not like give my money away to the man who was doing his job driving a taxi. (laughs) So like I would call a taxi and I would get in it at the bar, but I wanted my money for Coke. So I didn't want to pay the bill. And so like, as he would round the corner to a street three over from mine, I would jump out and run, you know, that's a warning sign, not Mm -hmm. paying your taxi bill. And, uh, you know, I've since made amends for that. I couldn't find the taxi driver, but I have put money in the basket and made a donation in his behalf. Um, so if you're out there, Laclede cab in St. Louis, Missouri, (laughs) zip code six, three, one, two, three off old English road. That was me. Yeah. And I'd be happy to buy you lunch or send you a gift card. I feel like everyone's done all of those things. Maybe everybody should do like a 12-step program in their life like one time. There's something for everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's not... Maybe so I can do overeating. <laughs> do I overeat? I feel like... Well, now since I haven't been drinking... Do you overeat? I don't overeat since I've been drinking. I mean, since I've stopped drinking, I stopped overeating. i just seen you tear up this whole bag of chips and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, who's being honest now? <laughs> You're that- like, it's from New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> not her shaming me for... <laughs> My low sugar. <laughs> oh. <laughs> really? <sighs> okay. Well, there's two questions. They're kind of the same. Okay. Well, ask them both. How has sobriety affected your life? Oh, and yeah. then 
the other one is kind of the same. It's what's the hardest part about sobriety and what's like the easiest part? Sobriety is like the gift that just keeps on giving. So there's like two ways to answer this. Like I've had the same job for like six years. Like that's a gift of sobriety. I am the kind of person that's like, I need a job. And like when I'm getting loaded, I'm like, I really need this job. I need to get this job. I will go give a good interview and I give a good interview and people are attracted to me and I like that and I have good energy and I get the job and then I go out drinking or smoking crack. And then I no call, no show on the first day, right? Like that's the kind of drug addict I am. Like I, ha I need this job and yet I got this job and I can't even show up to the first day. So like a gift of sobriety is being able to like show up and be accountable, like do the same thing. Um, show up to work, be there for other people. Like these are external things. Like I'm able to pay my car payment, right? I don't worry at, on, at Sunday or Monday morning when I wake up, is there enough money in my account to cover what I spent the night before or the three days before if I'm on a good one, right? Um, these are like external things, but like this internal thing that I got from being sober, like this freedom, I call it. Drug addiction and alcoholism is a legitimate prison and I get this freedom right I get a walk around um, f mostly free of this guilt and shame and baggage that I've carried from for most of my life like right I get to work through all these things and really um, be free of them and that's a powerful and big word freedom right so I get this freedom I think the easiest part about being sober it's being able to like, I, I love to sleep. Like, I don't know why I like to smoke crack so much because like that keeps you <laughs> up. But like, I love to sleep. Like, I am a sleeper. And um, all like, the sleep you didn't get. Yeah, honey, I'm still catching up. Yeah, yeah. Like that's like being able to wake up in the morning and like really check off the things on the list that um, are important. Um, sobriety, sobriety is hard. Sobriety is not easy. Like it's just not it's work like you really have to take a look in the mirror and like look at the ugly and the things that you're ashamed of and not proud of and you know you really have to address those things or you're getting drunk again usually yeah. right if i'm not connected and and doing the the work like chances are i'm gonna drink because i'm an alcoholic like i drink no matter what i am gonna drink and do drugs because that is how my brain is wired so if i'm not doing all this stuff to buffer me and i like i get one day of sobriety at a time like literally i get today sober like i've been able to put together like a almost six years of one days at a time but like i get 24 hours to like perfect it and like that's one of the slogans that and the one of the programs I go to is like, if I lay my head down tonight and haven't done a drink or a drug, like I'm a hundred percent perfect. Like I can figure everything else out that happens in that day. Um, as long as I'm not drinking or using. You're great. By the way, you're a great talker. <laughs> mm -hmm. You I are that. doing a, amazing she job is carrying us today but i do want to say like i going back to like media and i know i'm gonna jump back to your i'm gonna break the fourth wall and go back to your <laughs> like quick tea like um with gay people in the media like i was just it, it's interesting because a lot of the gay representation in mainstream tv is like drinking and using drugs like there's a lot like mm -hmm. queer as folk the first edition that was all about the party and mm -hmm. i just took a dip and i put my toe in the new queer as folk that's out on you know the one channel with the rainbow and oh, um yeah. and there's a lot of like twist in the pipe and crystal meth and drinking and drugs going on in that too so i think like oh is there uh yeah it's so it's like most of the gay like i would not look to tv for 
like inspiration if oh, i was a little yeah. kid because it's yeah. like this kid is getting high and it's a, a lot of yeah there are some good ones like what's that one that was on netflix that just happened that was cute heart stoppers uh, like you know there's a little bullying but there's not drugs and alcohol but mm. a lot of the early media revolving around you know gay people is like dark and twisted and they're mm-hmm. drunks and mm-hmm. they're addicts and, and that's probably why the straight community don't like the gays because there's probably you know, that's how it was put out. Well, they and believe they everything have, they fucking see on TV. <laughs> One of the reasons they don't. So like. they have this perception of gay people. I feel like with media and minorities, it's like when we start creating our own media, we have to kind of tell our personal stories. And sometimes that gets caught up because of a lot of us have problems with like drugs and alcohol and this all the like. And so it's kind of like we have to show our narrative and so a lot of those stories get told and i feel like a lot of them keep getting told but i feel like yeah at this point in like media history i feel like we're past the point of like showing that we're like still doing meth like on like glamorizing it Mm -hmm. like would you say that it seemed like i'm changing my mind and i'm a a woman of the night and i'm allowed to do that and now how you (laughs) just put it so i think like early media when it wasn't being represented by when it wasn't gay filmmakers or people like in the writing room that were homosexual and we were like the prostitutes and the kids on the street and Mm -hmm. the homeless kids i think like maybe that was my issue but now thinking about it um these shows that I've been watching and like special on Netflix. And um, he did a transition over like the story arc continued on to queer as folk, um, the cerebral palsy, Ryan O'Connell. I might be wrong, but I think that's his name. Um, he's writing for these shows. So now that there is, there is um, representation in the writing rooms and behind the scenes, I do think and agree with you. This is a common theme for um LGBTQ plus people is this uh, threat of addiction and alcoholism and like now that they're telling the stories it's a part of their story that they want to tell and I can respect that yeah so I've changed my mind because it is kind of like in gay media world it's like you either have drag race or you have extremely like not fun it's like we don't have any like just like fun shit like hard stopper you were saying was good that was cute but I love Victor I love Victor was a moment Mm mm-hmm I used to be obsessed with, like, gay documentaries on Netflix. <laughs> and, like, every time I would, like, log in, it would just be, like, gay shit. I'm addicted to gay YouTube. Just, like, learning gay information. Mm, such an ally. I'm a super... <laughs> I'm an ally to myself. <laughs> it's self... to practice self-love. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> I'm not really into gay shit. I know. Prove it. I feel like those I'm people straight, who bro. say... That they're like not into gay stuff. I like I know. I feel like I know a lot of gay people who are like, I don't care about gay stuff. Is that like internalized homophobia? I think it is. Yeah, it probably is. Not me hating the gays. <laughs> I, I had a problem with being gay. Like I really want to. Well, when you're told at ten, like I got pulled out of my last thirty days of fourth grade to be put in an institution where these people were like locked, like it was a locked ward with like big Samoan guys, like, you know, orderlies. And, you know, there were kids like running at the door. They come down the hall and they run real fast and they throw themselves against the door trying to get out. And, um, these are kids that literally were throwing blow dryers in the bathtub to kill their siblings. And I'm there because, like, I'm, like, sissified and wanted to play with Barbies, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Can we get into that? I was going to ask yeah. you. So, like, 
what the fuck so Ooh. you were just being a little sissy so boy and sissy. Then- like i might have been like on the you know i might have been on the gender binary if i was able and had lo- like like i might have suppressed a lot of that but like was like i just like sissy shit like girl shit i like feminine shit like i was super femme um i was um like very little like i was a very petite child and um like i got picked on a lot for like having feminine characteristics right and so like i grew up in a house um of all virgos out of seven people five were virgos and um they're nuts and uh four boys and one girl and um, I just wanted to do what the girl was doing. Like, I wanted to go dance ballet and do tap and, um, like, play with my little ponies. And I remember when I was probably in 1990, it's, and it's a different time. Like, I was, I'm 42 now, and, like, I've seen the progression of, like, pride and, like, where we're at now where, like, um, Postmates is doing a bottom menu. Like, that's not the era that I grew up in, right? <laughs> we weren't doing that. Like, Pride, when I was that age, um, when I was growing up, was like literally at a public park in St. Louis. Um, and it was like you had to pull a permit for a picnic. Like, there was no parade. Like, mm. it's definitely so. I grew up in a different time, but I just wanted to do girl shit. And I remember, um, like, I don't know if you know what the Cabbage Patch doll is. So, um, my dad is like, um, He's a like three time Purple Heart recipient. He's a Marine. Um, he's a tough guy. He went over to Vietnam. He got shot at a lot. He came home. He went again. So like a really tough, mass hyper masculine guy. And um, I remember just like crying in the Price Club, which is like equivalent to Costco. Um, that I at like six or seven, I just wanted the Cabbage Patch doll. Like that's all I wanted. I wanted the Cabbage Patch doll, and because it was like overtly effeminate like him not wanting to get it for me but his mom um my grandma god rest her soul she was like larry if you don't buy this kid this damn doll and you know so i had people like allies like her Mm -hmm. around um in 1986 that would let me like sneak a little bit of that shit but um like i was just feminine and they really thought like they were doing at this hospital like this lockdown ward like i knew that i didn't belong there Like I knew in my heart of hearts, like as a kid, you just know things. And I'm like, I am not like these kids. So I like advanced through their level system. Like level one, you could play in the day room and play Pac-Man on the thing that they had. Level two, they would give you a radio with a cord because they took all the cords away and you would get to play with that in your room for 30 minutes. And like, so you go through a system and they're doing, um, back then it was biofeedback. And um, so they would like attach these things to your brain and like mm-hmm. read your brain waves. And so I'm Jesus. thinking something is like for a 10 year old, some that like something is inherently wrong with me, right? Yeah. Like, oh, whoever this is that they're trying to figure out, like you cannot be. And I remember like, um, harboring that feeling of like you just cannot be this person because this is not the vibe like Mm -hmm. you know but i saw a lot of psychiatrists i saw a lot like they really did not want me to be gay like they my parents are hyper conservative my mom and my stepfather are hyper conservative and like just until recently i started realizing like i don't have to protect them anymore like i would say oh that's just who they are that's they didn't know better but no they are straight up homophobic bigots that hate gay people right Mm -hmm. and i like even at you know five years sober like having to look at that and say like oh like you're protecting these people who were really like awful to you Mm mm-hmm you know, so I was just like, that was the thing. And um, yeah, they, they did a lot of weird shit. Like they sent me to military school and um, 
So my freshman year of high school, they sent me to all boys boarding school in Carlsbad, California, which was like not the worst thing in the world. Um, but like they thought that like if I was around that hyper masculine energy, like like maybe I wouldn't be so gay. But I remember the first day I was there, like you would go, you get your uniform on, your shoes had to be shined and you go to the mess hall and eat. And um, like I was a freshman, so I was like, what, 13, maybe 14. And um, like I came out of the hall and there was like the senior grass you were not supposed to walk across unless you were a senior or you got thrown in the fountain. And it was my first day there and I didn't know that. So all the seniors came out and they were like hazing me. But um, I remember like, and it stick it stuck with me. Um, this one cadet, he was like, why do you walk like that? And I was like, why don't you walk like that? You know, like I was just like, I was always effeminate, you know, and just mm -hmm. like I walked, honey. And, um, you know, so all, all that stuff just like kept me like, it made me hate who I was. Like it literally made me um, it like the internalized homophobia, like off the charts with me mm -hmm. because I never wanted to be that. Like I was taught that that person should be hated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's tough because that's me. Like, literally, the person you're supposed to hate is you. And uh, so there's a lot of unfucking that had to go along. I'm not there yet, but I'm I'm getting there. I think mine is shame. Um, like, not that, like, the internalized homophobia thing. I think it's like that, like, being ashamed of being gay. Isn't that internalized? Is that the same? That's no, like, literally the yeah. definition. Yeah. No, because no, mm. he said, like, what did you just say? Oh my god! Like self hate. Yeah, like it wasn't like self hate, but it it, hate and the shame are in the same vein. Oh, mm -hmm. excuse me. Because <laughs> internalized homophobia is all about like not liking yourself, and like if you're ashamed of yourself, then chances are you don't like yourself. Or also not liking other things mm -hmm. that are deemed as G gay or gay or feminine or feminine and men. Girl, I wanted to dance so bad. I would go to the Marilyn McDowell Ballet Academy to pick up my sister and just be like, let me in. Let me in there. So then, can <laughs> I ask you more about that? So, like, as f they're sending you to these places, right? Yeah. Because they're like, you're so gay. I mean, they didn't say, no one, so it's funny because no one said, like, yeah, so no like one had, was able to be honest enough to have the conversation to say like this is what gay is you might be gay like and this is not okay it was very like tiptoed around but like mm -hmm. the implications were always there interesting that's crazy yeah because historically it was in in 1980 uh american psychological association took homosexuality out of the dsm so this in the 80s to 90s, every everyone that was trained to be a therapist or a psychiatrist was taught that homosexuality was a mental disease. Oh, interesting. Also, like how rude, right? Like you have a mental disease, but we're not going to tell you like what it is even. But what was so crazy is like I found out how to cruise because my brothers and stepdad made fun of the fags. Like they were like, yeah. I grew up in Long Beach. And so they would always make gay jokes about rest stops and ripples. Right. Because ripples was like <laughs> ripples. the vibe back then. Ripples was it like in the early like it's been around for it's gone now. R.I.P. But um, like 
they would make fun of gay people and I was like oh like I would always mental note at like 10 11 12 I'm like okay rest stops I need to find the rest stops <laughs> or like ripples I need to know what that is so like I would go down to ripples and not old enough to get in but like old enough to ride my bike to the parking lot by ripples yeah. and notoriously back in the day the parking lot across from ripples was the cruise spot like you could probably go there at night now and it's a little cruisy, but like back in the day, we didn't have grinder. Like you actually had to look like your picture because it was like in real life. You couldn't mm, like face tune no or filter. nothing. You just pull up to the car, right? And uh, so I lear- like thank them for making fun of gay people, so I knew where to find my people. Thank you. They're like you've seen them at Bixby Park, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> they they know all the cruising spots. I know. Right. They're like secretly gay. Okay, the one's questionable. <laughs> It's like, I've seen them at Hot Java. (laughs) (laughs) In that gay crosswalk area. Yeah, but they haven't changed. Like, um, my stepfather, he's old. I'm not making excuses for him. He's a bigot and he's a a conservative. And um, I remember, like, right when I first got sober, so probably like five, 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 six years ago, I walked into their house and I was doing something, picking up my mail because I like never could have a, an address. So all my shit had to go to the P.O. box because I can never keep an apartment. Um, and I remember him talking to his friend and they like, I guess um, Garcia had just recently painted the rainbow sidewalk um, oh. on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to his friend. I guess there had been like a, a Advert, not an ad. What do they call it? Article in the paper, and over here, he's like fucking fags in the rainbow sidewalk. And I was like, I looked, and I was like, you know, I'm here, right? And like, didn't say, not missing a beat, nothing. Like, that's just the kind of people they are, and that's the kind of people like I, uh, up until recently, protected. I did not want them to look bad. So I remember my mom so clear, like a Pride at and Happy Pride. Um, we're in June. Uh, I remember a Pride had just happened and it was on the news. And I remember my mom saying to me one time, like, I'm glad you're not one of those gays. Mm. Like that have to be out there marching oh. and saying who you are. And I'm like, you are fucking good. awful. Mm. You are one of the worst. Like you are like you are the problem. Mm-hmm. And I remember that. I just remember being like, I'm glad you're not one, like, yesified. And I was just like, no, those people are out there, like, really making their voices heard. So you yeah. recognize us. Mm-hmm. Like, you literally think we're second class citizens and do not, still don't have equal protection under the law. Like, still don't. And especially with employment, like you can get fired in some states for being gay or sexuality, Mm -hmm. even though they say you can't, you like, you can, like, you don't have equal protection under law as some just for who you love. And like my own mom, who is like, that's where the unconditional love is supposed to come from, right? Like, historically, we're taught, like, our parents are supposed to be the ones that love us unconditionally. And that's mm-hmm. just not my experience. And mm-hmm. I don't think people talk about that enough. Like you can make your own family. You get to go where the love is, not where you think it should be. Yeah. Right. And for a long time, I try to force myself like back into that family and like, they're going to figure it out. They're going to come around. They're going to be people who can love, respect, affirm. And I held on to that delusion for a long time. And it wasn't until recently that I'm like, oh, I don't have to fuck with these people. Yeah. I just don't. Like, you know, if they invite me to Christmas, I'll go to the country club and eat the prime rib. Like, I am not above a good meal for bigotry. <laughs> like, I will eat and, like, listen to your bigotry. And that's cool. They owe you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's cool. They do. Um, but, yeah, they're just, that's who they are. 
and it's unfortunate and i just don't that's not my vibe i, yeah. I don't rock with that anymore mm-hmm. but it was hard like being constantly told to not be who you are um like i don't i was trying to remember like when i came out to my mom and i think it was like 18 and she was giving me a car because as long as i was in st louis um because i went there for my last two years of high school i wasn't her problem right so as long as i was far enough away separated by states like she could just throw money at it and i like Mm. used that to my advantage and so i was here i just graduated high school i was 18 she was buying me a jeep but as long as i like drove it back across country the next day you can't stay with us you're the problem um even though I'd been removed for three years. And I remember I like, she asked me like, what was up with me and my roommate? And like, I was like, Oh, we're in a fight. It was a girl. Um, cause I always had girl roommates. Um, big mistake. Um, but I was like, Oh, I'm mad at her. Like, you know, you, and whatever. And she's like, Oh, what happened? I was like, Oh, she slept with someone I was dating. And she was like, Oh, and that person was a guy. And I was like, yes, that person was a guy. <laughs> and like, that was my coming out. Like, no questions. No, like we've known you were gay for the longest time. It's going to be okay. You're going to have like, you could still live your life. And or like none of that. Just like, Oh, it's okay. So you're ready to go back to St. Louis. And so like, I've just never had that parent mm-hmm. and uh, it's okay. So, oh, I have a question. Go for it. About the addiction. So were you chasing the feeling of like the high feeling, like, like you feel good. So you want to be like this all the time. Like, were you chasing that or were you like running from something? I think there was like a component of like check out, like, feel, like it's momentarily like you get high and then it's like you're numb for a second and then it's like reality hits and then you mm-hmm. got to get high some more. Right. So I think there's like a checkout component to getting high. Um, and I think there's comes a time when um, you're a pickle and you've been a pickle for a while and it stops working. So like you keep getting high because your mind tells you you have to but like it doesn't work and there's a period and it's like it's it's literally torture and insanity that period where you're Mm. still trying to produce the same result of the mental checkout or like just stop the thoughts and like what you've used stops working so like it's almost like you're sick you're taking this medicine it works you feel better you're sick, you take this medicine again, it works, you feel better. You get sick, you're taking your medicine, guess what, it stops working. Mm-hmm. So you're still sick, right? So it's like, I, it's always with me as a checkout. What about using to stop withdrawals? When I introduce myself, I love to say I'm an alcoholic, mm-hmm. right? Because that's like socially acceptable yeah. to some extent, but I have to remind myself that I am a, like, that's why I say I am a crack addict. Like I have to really say what I am so I don't forget. Mm-hmm. And like, that's like derogatory and dirty. And like, you know, it's funny how people like rank drugs about mm-hmm. like how fuck, but like addiction across the board is addiction. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're doing fen fen to lose weight or, and you're doing it or meth or, you know, addiction is addiction. You know, I got, when I got in the fight with that refrigerator and almost got my leg cut off, like legitimately the doctor was going in and he's like, don't be surprised if you wake up missing a leg. And I was like, he's joking. Right. Um, I was put on pain pills. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was like a, almost a four year addiction. And, um, pain pills are one of, one of, it's an opiate and it's one of those drugs that if you're doing it for, um, even a couple days, like to be honest with you, if you take pain pills for a couple days and then don't take them, you get withdrawals. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, society has like, there's like, um, crutches that you can use to, 
ease the symptoms of withdrawal, but I almost find that like those can sometimes become a crutch and it's like almost the same thing like oh, the yeah. methadone oh, methadone yeah. is a thing where people go to the mm-hmm. methadone clinic you are used to doing opiates and you go to the methadone clinic and it mimics kind of like you don't go get go through withdrawals but you still are putting synthetic dope into your body yeah right and so what happens is like you're blocking those receptors from receiving heroin but when you have a an, an addict mind like that doesn't stop you so what happens is those people who are on the methadone like get the bright idea that i'm gonna shoot dope and they like do heroin and um the receptors aren't connecting because this methadone is blocking them and they do more heroin and then they overdose and they die so like for Mm -hmm. me um if you are like that that's a very important question if you are someone who's drinking and using drugs to the extent that you are having withdrawals you need to go seek medical attention there are people and facilities out there that will detox you so you can get separated from drugs and alcohol in a environment um that is conducive to staying alive because mm-hmm. it is literally if you're at that point it's life or death like yeah. your life is on the line and um go seek medical attention like that is so important i'm glad you brought it up like if you are experiencing physical symptoms from withdrawal you need to go seek medical mm-hmm. attention yeah. right but true it's like alcoholism and addiction is mm-hmm. a life or death matter yeah. like for me it's life or death mm-hmm. oh let me do you think that addiction is like a hereditary trait everyone drinks in my family so now i drink i think that's a social construct like that's being socialized into drinking and like Mm. seeing it's okay um for me i try not to get into that debate because i'm not a scientist like i always sucked at math and science um (laughs) but i will tell you what i have that makes me different from other people who are not cucumbers is that i have this like abnormal reaction to drugs and alcohol that I can't turn off. So like once I take one drink or one hit or one pill, I don't have an off switch. Like something happens and it's like described Mm -hmm. as an allergy, which is like an abnormal reaction, right? So like if you're allergic to strawberries and I cut them up and put them on this plate right here and you look at them, nothing happens. But you eat one of those strawberries, what happens? You break out in hives, you could get a rash, you know, like you can go in anaphylactic shock, but you have to consume the strawberry for this allergy to be activated. So like I have this abnormal body component especially with drugs and alcohol and it's like different for each one of the drugs that i've done like mushrooms doesn't do that for me i don't eat mushrooms and say oh i need to eat a plate full of mushrooms right Mm -hmm. but like i take a hit of crack or a bump of coke i don't have an off switch something happens the abnormal reaction happens in my body where like something like this craving develops and i have to have more at whatever Mm -hmm. cost and i cannot stop it like i can't say you know what I've had enough Coke. I'm done. Like I don't have an off switch. So I have to get separated for a minute, which is either like run out of money or like, you know, do things I said I never would do to get more money or steal from you to get more Coke. And then like maybe white out, which do too much Coke to where I pass out. And like, even after being separated and stop doing it, like for a period of time, I always go back to having to do it. Mm. So like, I think that like genetic, wise like i don't know hereditary passed down but i do know that i do have um i don't have the off switch and i think that's innate so 
I don't know. Okay. I think that if you, I don't know if this is true. I'm just making shit up. <laughs> I think that if maybe if you have parents that have drug and alcohol problems, you may have them yourself if they are abusing it in a way that it affects your childhood. And then maybe that in turn, like leads you to drink or do drugs later. I don't know. No. Yeah. I will say that I don't have any self-identified alcoholics in my family. I do know my father. I never in the 30 I was wait, 24 years old when he passed away. In the 24 years that I was on this earth, this man did not take a drink, but he did crash his car into the Jack in the Box on South Grand in St. Louis um, when he came home from one of his tours of duty from drinking. There came a time when drinking was a problem for him and he was able to stop and I never saw him drink a day in my life. Um, so, and I do know like, I mean, they're, my, the rest of my family drinks, mm. right? They like mm. to drink. And they're suspicious of people who don't drink. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's like a, like a thing, like with like, I don't know, old school people. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, do no that. one's an alcoholic enough to be considered an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, unless you, and then it's like the way they see it is like, if you have the title alcoholic, then it's like, you're the lowest of the lowest of the low or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it is this weird thing where like, it's like, if you don't, drink it is like you are the the weird freak Mm -hmm. like what's your problem that you're not doing this yeah well so normalized Mm -hmm. like there's drinking in tvs and movies like we just see it everywhere what do you recommend anyone listening do if they think they might have an issue with drugs or alcohol and then also any other advice you would like to share with the listeners about sobriety drugs in general so on and so forth okay so if you i mean i feel like i've said it and i probably said it like in three different ways um if you feel like you have a problem with drinking or drugs i would ask for help like literally that's the first step is asking for help um and you can find various resources um google search 12-step program i don't i know this is anonymous podcast but i'm sure you could email and contact um the people who host this podcast and um submit your information and I'll be happy to give you a call and talk about it. Um, I would give you my Instagram shout out, but it's a work account. And um, so don't DM me there. Um, But I'm, I really, what, what I will say over and say over and say over is like, this is literally a self diagnose. You can't have someone tell you you're an alcoholic or addict. You have to figure it out for yourself. You have to look at your experiences surrounding drugs and alcohol and identify if it is a problem for you. And if it is a problem for you, reach out to any of the 12-step programs. There are hotlines. You can Google them. They'll put you in contact with 12-step meetings that are in your area. There are literally meetings going on every day in Orange County, in Long Beach, in LA. There's gay-friendly meetings. Um, there's closed meetings, there's women's only meetings, there's men's meetings, there's all kind of meetings. And really all you have to do in is walk in and identify yourself as someone who thinks they might have a problem with drugs or alcohol. And like, they will pick you up and take you from there. But I really implore you to like, look at your own experience and identify if that's something you um, are feeling. And like nine times out of nine, your intuition is usually right. You just have to listen to it. Cause I can't tell you how many times like that inner voice said, Brent, you have a problem. And I was like, nah, girl, you don't have no problem. (laughs) You're just wild or nah, girl, you don't have a problem. You're just having fun. Look at all these other people who are like you. They're having fun too. Mm -hmm. So 
like do that. And like, I, you know, sobriety has been a great journey. It's been a lot of work, but it's been a lot of fun too. And, um, you can have fun in sobriety. You really can. And we do. And, uh, it's important to laugh. I thank you guys for letting me bully my way onto this podcast. <laughs> I really do appreciate talking to you. I, I was really excited to get a, get to do this. So thank you for having me. Thank you. That was so good. (laughs) That was a really good one. Yes. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, it's my pleasure. If I can help one person, that would be cool. Mm -hmm. And actually, I helped myself today. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, thank you for joining us. Thank Thank you you for being a part. Thank you for being very vulnerable and telling the truth and letting it all out there. And that was amazing. That was great. Yeah. Thank you so much. I would like to thank myself, Nino. Dr. David and Guy and our very special guest Brent from all of us at the Queer LBC podcast. I would like to say good night. Sleep tight. Buenas noches, bitches. Night. I love you. Good night. Bye.